I mean, I have the upside of when I started working from home. Hi, I like your Lego map. Is that your oh, Lego map? You. That is my Lego map. Yeah. yeah. So I recognize that. And there's the, the Lego bat wing as well. Okay. Hold on. Lego bat wing. Nice. But does yours have the LED lights? Oh my gosh. What? Yeah. So I could just sit at my desk. I do this during meetings, and just kind of uh. like change it and you know if I, i've told people you know if i get angry you know it gets redder and redder and redder oh um, my my version of that is i have phillips hue lights around my office so i'll be in a meeting and all of a sudden like all of a sudden like my entire <laughs> all of a sudden i'm blue all of a sudden sometimes you mess it up and all of a sudden you're just blinded and you're just totally nice. washed out and people are like what is happening over there and you're like, never i'm a professional this is work you're like, there are some like police cars outside or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which actually uh, there, there were in my neighborhood this past weekend because I live in a, a small like a small neighborhood. Uh, it's called Crystal Lake, which is the same name as the summer camp in the um, Friday the 13th movies. Um, and we do have a lake in the middle. And um, my mom had dropped by it was just me and my oldest daughter were at home. And we heard sirens. Like That's that's strange. It's like we don't usually hear sirens in the neighborhood. And we go outside and we just see billows of black smoke. And on the other side of the lake, house totally on fire. Just like it's we can't see the fire yet because the smoke is so intense. And we go back inside and we come back out like 10 minutes later. And now the neighborhood is swarming with people from every every people have come from all over to see this fire. And now you can clearly see the fire and the entire second story of this house is being destroyed. Oh, wow. And um, it's very uncomfortable uh, seeing, seeing a house on fire. And, and my kids are still uh, very wary about stuff burning down. And what makes it more uncomfortable is the fact that these are the people in our neighborhood that every single year at Halloween put on an amazing haunted mansion display on their front lawn. So they would recreate the different like sort of optical tricks from the haunted mansion. And everyone's like, oh, it's the haunted mansion people like. <laughs> Like oh. that makes it worse. Like it's not bad enough that these poor people's house is just burning, you know, but it's like, oh no, they're not going to get to do Haunted Mansion anymore. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry you lost Haunted Mansion and probably traumatized your kids. <laughs> I mean, look, it's going to be something, right? So it wasn't me this time. It's not on me, you know? So uh, yeah. my, my youngest is afraid to use the upstairs bathroom because she flooded it twice. And the second time she did it, it both times were first thing in the morning. And the second time I, uh, it's like six in the morning on a work day. I hear, <laughs> I walk out of my door and like, I, I can turn and I can see upstairs to the bathroom. Like I was also see through the, the kitchen and I see water just streaming down through the ce ceiling of the kitchen. And I'm like, you're and like, that's my response. And like my wife's like, it's okay. It's okay. And I'm like, I'm, I'm panicking, running upstairs and diving, sliding across the floor to turn off the valve, then racing back down to the kitchen, put a bucket in my wife's like, it's going to be okay. It's fine. Like, I know you didn't. And I'm like, shut off the water. You know, and it's, it turned out it wasn't actually her fault. The second time, the first time was one of those like kids just keep flushing and flushing and flushing and don't know that it's going to overflow yeah. this time. Like literally the valve got stuck like in the, the, the tank and just kept yep. going. Um, but now I trauma my reaction traumatized her so much. She she's afraid to use second story bathrooms anywhere. Hmm. So, yeah, that's. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's amazing how we're going to screw these people up. 
Right. You like never it's, know. It's going to be something and it's never going to be something you expect. So, you know, you're just trying to like not not be your like be the the good things about your parents, but not the bad things. And then um, but also not be reactionary to the point where, well, you did this. Well, I'm going to do the opposite just because you did that, which is also a bad choice, because then you're not actually making a rational decision either. You're just being reactionary. So, yeah. So uh, what how are things in uh, in the Pacific Northwest today? Uh, they're, they're, they're pretty good. I mean, it's been cold. You know, it's, you know, see, I was like 22 this morning when I got up. I don't, I don't like, I don't like that. Um, no, <laughs> no, but it's been dry, you know? So yeah, you got, you got that too. That's true. We, we, uh, rain is much less frequent here and it's been dreary lately and we're going to get whacked with this winter storm that's coming through, which is rare for us. Like we typically get about one inch cumulative a year. Um, so the fact that we got hit by that snowstorm in December and now mm-hmm. we're going to get hit by this, it's a it's already a very atypical year for us. But what are you going to do? Yeah. And you're Tennessee. Is that right? I am. Uh, so we're in Memphis, yeah. Tennessee. Uh, oh, yeah. An inch of snow will shut you down. Yeah. It's a and people are like, why does it shut you down? It's like because we have no infrastructure for it. And they said, well, why don't you say, like, why would we? Yeah. You know, why would you invest like the hundreds of millions of dollars to you know, have all the equipment and, and everything when it's such a rare incident that it's just easier to close down for a day and then everyone just comes back. Yeah. Yeah. When I lived in South Carolina, I seem to recall someone telling me that we're like six snow plows for the state. And I was like, you know, it's snowing. We'll just we'll just roll with it. And I mean, the danger is if you if you live in a place like that and you do know how to drive on snow. Um, you're going to be, I'll be fine. Like, I'll just go out. It's yeah, but like, no one else can. No one else can. So I, I was uh, in high school. I remember my dad had picked me up. Uh, it, was, it started snowing midday and they just let us loose early because it was accumulating on the roads and they didn't want anyone to have accidents. And we're at a four-way stop in the suburbs. And, um, you know, it's like not the stop, like stop signs, not stoplights. And there was a lady that had got stuck in the middle of the intersection. It had already iced enough in the middle uh, that she had made it halfway and lost traction. And she, you can see she, she's not sure what to do. So she keeps kind of hitting the gas a little bit and it's not getting anywhere. And then at a certain point, she's just like, screw it. And just puts her foot down. And she also turns the wheel. So the car starts doing donuts in the middle of the four-way <laughs> stop. And you can see all four directions of people. It's like a game of Russian roulette because everyone's like, oh God, sooner or later she's going to get traction and she's just going to take off. She's just going to take off. Ah. Yeah, it's a, it was, it was terrifying. Sooner or later she got traction and it was all okay. But I I just remember that incident in particular. And that's, that's my, this is why you don't go driving anyway, even if you know how. Yeah. Good, good, good motto or good, good lesson for life. Yeah. So I feel like I would be negligent if I'm talking to you and we don't talk about maps in some capacity, yeah. given the fact that you you went through the time to do a Lego dots map behind you, which uh, is a lot of effort. And the fact that you were dedicated enough to maps that you clearly made it your Twitter handle. So how like wh- is is there a flashpoint for you that you're like, I like cartography like when when did that sort of happen for you or is it just you sort of came into it through a different means or 
I mean, for data, for me, I can say it happened with Freakonomics when I was in college. My dad said, read this book. And I'm like, I don't want to read your, your book, old man. And I read him like, that was really interesting. You know? <laughs> and then years later, I had a career in data. But um, yeah, do you, do you have any sort of anecdote or like, what is it with maps for you? How did you get into this? Yeah. So, I mean, if you talk to most geographers, um, my experience is that most of them are not like, oh, I wanted to make maps when I was a child. I've met like one person who says something like that. Um, you know, no one ever says, oh, maps, they were stupid. But, you know, I ended up in this career anyway. Like, like everybody loves maps. But for me, it was um, when I applied for college, I kind of checked the box, either like, what do you want to major in? So I just checked, you know, all of the you know, kind of social sciencey sorts of things. I'm like, I, I don't know, I'm going to study one of these. And I started at the University of Washington and they made me a geography major. So all my friends, you know, have their undeclared pre-med, pre-business on their schedules back in the, the day when they printed out schedules and gave them to you. And mine says geog. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess I'm a geography major. I had no clue. I could just like change this. It was like, like you know, whatever, <laughs> you know, change your major every quarter. No one cares. Um, and I'm, I'm a rule follower just by nature. You know, it's like if someone's like, okay, you need, you need to do X, Y, and Z. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. You know, I get in lines behind people. You know, it's like, that, that's, how I, that's how I am. Um, so I'm reading through the, the book of, you know, all the courses, because, you know, you get like that super thick, like here are all the fun classes. It's like, oh, well, you know, these classes sound fun, um, you know, seems interesting. So what would I do to be a geography major? That's like within two quarters of acceptance to the major, you must take this class. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I've got to sign up for this class. So I signed up for um, Intro to Cartography. It was my second geography class uh, as an undergraduate, and it was taught by like crazy man, like serious crazy man. And so I go into the class and first off on the first day of class, he like publicly humiliates me because this is the professor who was like, come into all of the lab classes just to say hi personally to the students because, you know, there's a couple hundred people in the class or something. And he's like, ooh, what have we here? Because my last name is Battersby. I'm very high on the roll sheet. So he's like calling us out and saying hi. It's like, what have we here? A real live freshman. And I was like, oh, oh, no. like terrified of him to begin with. And then, I mean, he was just a crazy man. You know, he was like running around in the front of the room and like throwing maps everywhere. And I was like, I don't understand him. He's crazy. I don't get it. I told my TA, I'm going to drop the class. I could like see my TA's eyes roll in the email. And he's like, don't drop the class. I didn't drop the class. It started to make sense. And I was like, this guy is kind of cool. So I took like half of my credits with crazy man. He advised my senior thesis. I was like, this is just really interesting. And I got so excited about where does data come from? What can be wrong with data? Like one of the best classes I took was map sources and errors. And we'd do things like walk around downtown with land use maps and find all of the things that were wrong with them. Because temporally things change. Buildings get built, land uses change, zoning changes. Um, and it was just so fascinating to me that people were so involved in this process, but it seemed like there was so little thinking about the problems of like, how do people understand the, the errors in data? How do they understand what that does to analytics? How do they understand how it was sampled? How do they understand the analyses? How do they understand the map at the end? And so at that point, I guess I was just, I was just a cartographer. I went to grad school, did some more cartography, 
stayed in grad school, did a PhD. You know, it's like that was that was kind of how I got into maps. Like I just found out that I really loved thinking about the data problems and how people think about spatial data because um, it's just it's just fascinating to me. Um, but it was all, you know, a data mistake. I have still never done the admission requirements to be accepted into the geography major at the University of Washington, <laughs> which I remind people every time I go back to like alumni things. That's wild. So some, somehow you make it through undergrad and grad school and still never met the minimum requirements to, to take it in the first place. Yeah. I mean, when I was doing my senior credit check, they're like, you know, you never took like geography 101 or something. Cause I just went straight to the upper division classes because they were more interesting. Um, they're like, but I think we're just going to waive that because you're a senior. You've taken like all of the 400 level classes. I'm not going to tell you, I'm not even going to give you credit if you want to take 101. It's like, oh, I mean, it seems like it might be fun. They're like, why don't you go do an independent study or something? Oh my gosh. That's why I, I actually, when I was in grad school, I was an advisor. So I had an assistantship and everyone had like a job that came with that. And I had to be an uh, undergrad advisor in the business school. And uh, that's one of the most challenging and miserable jobs because you're, you're trying to map these, these kids paths through their education. And if you screw up in the wrong place, it can set you back a whole semester or two, depending on the timings of courses. And then you'd be like, there would be parents that would try to get into it with you. And they'd be like, I just want to know why, why they're doing such and such. I'm like, I look, I, I can't talk to you. I, for I can't tell you first of all, because like, if, if you have them sign this form, I can like, why can't you tell me I'm paying for everything? I'm like, cause they're an, they're an adult. Like, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I know you see them as your, your child and they are your child. They were born to you, but they're legally an adult. So, you know, if, if, you know, talk to them, get them to sign the darn thing. But yeah, it's uh, oh my gosh. Okay. So well, I will say when I when I was at I was at the University of South Carolina for eight years as a professor, and I was the director of undergraduate studies in geography, and I loved doing that. You know, it's like to me there was something, and I think this is probably part of why I love data just in general too. To me, it's like the the whole advising process. It was just really, really exciting to to find out like what are you interested in. Let's figure out a pathway. Yeah, how do you put things together? How do you come up with a set of skills that gets you to this thing that you need? Um, yeah. I love doing that. But advising there was also like, they were required to come see me. Like they couldn't register for classes until I clicked a button. Yeah. So they were very excited about, about coming to get registered. <laughs> I, it's, it's so interesting to hear you talking about data errors in geography because Obviously, I deal with data errors all the time, and but I don't typically work in spatial data, so I, I don't really consider that as a factor. In fact, very such a small amount of what I do either personally nor professionally comes in terms of spatial data. In fact, a lot of times when people are even dealing with, say, regional data or state level data, you know, I work for Jones Lang LaSalle, so we're corporate real estate, so we're dealing with people's facilities and that kind of thing. Uh, very rarely are we actually mapping a building. We're just talking about how your buildings compare to one another. And um, a lot of people are tempted to put this on a map. And it's like, okay, so you put 500 points on a map, but unless it matters that this one is here and that one is there, did it need to be on a map? Or could you have expressed, I don't know, the efficacy of their work order fulfillment better on a bar chart, you know, and it's, I'm not, I'm not directing them away from the map for the sake of that, but I, I've in, in different cases had clients say, or uh, like a, uh, another analyst say like, I put a map on there. Cause they said they wanted this to be more visual. 
I'm like, well, does the map do anything? Well, no, but they like the colors on it. And that's when you you die inside because it's like, if I want a map, I want a good map. Like I want a map that's like useful. And it's like, it matters that this thing is here and that thing is there. And that lends an extra piece of context versus those are just two data points that are now more difficult to understand because I put them in a different format, you know? Yeah, I, I generally don't feel bad about telling people that they shouldn't use a map. Um, but there are so many cool ways to use a map, even if your your data, like the spatial doesn't really matter a whole lot. Like I love the map as a filter, for instance. So it may not matter where the, the 500 data points are, you know, here are all of the properties that may not be giving you an interesting pattern, but maybe you want to be able to do something like filter to everything in the north part of the city filter to everything downtown. You can still get that cool mappiness, but you can make it the small thing that doesn't take up a lot of real estate and give people an intuitive way to filter spatially because they may have a spatial question, but it's not really that the spatial is the most important thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, I think there are a lot of really fun, creative ways to get that little map bling, but um, yeah, generally the worst reason to, to put a map on your, on your dashboard or in your visualization is because, well, it looks really cool. <laughs> uh, Unless we, you want to make it out of Legos and then you can always use a map. Oh man, and I, let me tell you, I had my Lego dots organized. I had an organizer, I had them by color and everything. And then my art child got her hands on them and now it's just a, a hellscape of color. Um, so, so yeah, there's a moral to that somewhere. Well, okay. let me know when she wants to turn that into a map. You know, oh, I'll, right. I'll, I'll help, help get her hooked up. Well, I'm going to try to get the kids to do the uh, Data Visualization Society kids exercises that came in the volume two. So we'll give that a go and see how that works out. See, I've got my um, my sports kid and, uh, and uh, movie kid, the old one. And then my young one is my art child and Manic Pixie Dream Girl. So somewhere between the two of them, uh, one of the girls will like something on there, hopefully. I mean, we can we can doll up a map with any color scheme that's gonna gonna fit, you know. Sports, we do it in your favorite team colors. We'll do it in you know pixie rainbow colors. Yeah, I can we can we can work on this. Okay, I have a geography based confession that I have to make. I have to be careful because everyone is awake at my house, but we have a minor league baseball team downtown. And when my oldest daughter was young. We had gone to a game and the next day I had an old baseball in the garage that I left in the bushes of the front yard. And she found it and said, oh, the Redbirds must have hit this. They're a solid 20 miles away. She's now 11. And because she's downtown so infrequently has yet to put together the geographic distance to understand that it's physically impossible for baseball players to be hitting the ball 20 miles into our front yard. So Sooner or later, this is going to come out. Well, if the wind were blowing just right. I mean, it doesn't <laughs> happen all the time. I mean, I guess it could happen. And, and I'll say, so um, I, I love baseball. I have been to a Redbirds game. You have? I have been to a Redbirds game. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. When, I, when I was driving out to South Carolina to move out there, I, I, I didn't do a particularly fast drive. And so I would choose, you know, what's a fun, interesting place to stop somewhere I've never been. So I, I, I spent a night in Memphis and it turned out there was a Redbirds game and I was all over that. I thought it was great. It's a really fun little park. Yeah, I love minor league baseball. Minor league is, yeah, it's hard to beat because like everybody loves it. It's just everybody's enthusiastic. and we, 
we love minor league everything. I, I'm never really into like pro sports, but uh, my oldest daughter and I, we used to go to, we had, a, we had a minor league hockey team called the River Kings. And we'd go see them and she absolutely loved that. And uh, now they've switched over. We have a minor league indoor soccer team called the Memphis Americans. And it's a much more exciting version of soccer because it's using the boards of a hockey arena. So, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Indoor soccer because there's more... like no out of bounds, right? Oh, yeah. They're playing it off the walls. You know, it's uh, it's it's super fast paced and fun. And it's uh, it, it, no one no one up there is making like 40 million dollars. It's like the stakes for everyone is just like the game, you know, so it's a lot, a lot of fun in that. Um, I have to ask you. I don't know a ton about maps and I'm looking at your Lego map. Is that a Mercator view? The sort oh my of- God. Take that question back. Okay. This is, see, this is an equal earth projection. Okay. See, that's why I ask because I understand my own ignorance in this area. And as I'm thinking about this, I realize the difficulty we have in expressing anything that is meant to be a sphere two dimensionally. Yeah. And, and Mercator has the name recognition. Like if you ask anybody, you know, name a map projection. Like I'm going to say, like unless you're talking to a geography nerd, 99% of people are going to say Mercator, and the other 1% are going to say, "What's a map projection?" Yeah, uh, because Mercator is, you know, it's you see a lot of it. I mean, a lot of base maps, um, Google Maps. I mean. There's some switching around um, these days, you know, and with technology changing, it's just a little bit easier to use some alternative projections. But kind of traditionally, Google Maps was uh, Web Mercator, which is just a variant of Mercator, and it's so close, just just consider them the same for, for all all intents and purposes. Um, but yeah, you can see it on Google Maps, on Tableau, on Bing Maps, you know, any of those kind of standard web map tiles, you know, they're going to be a web Mercator projection. It's big, it's rectangular. Computationally, there are lots of reasons to use it. People see it a lot, but it has some problems. And so it gets a lot of bad press. And, um, you know, the bad press generally revolves around, well, it's not equal area. So everything, as you move away from the equator, everything gets enlarged. Um, So the scale changes. So uh, just another point, you know, anytime you see a Mercator, a web map, and it's got a scale bar on it, oh my gosh, it's so wrong. Like my favorite part about Tableau, if you put your cursor over the uh, scale bar, it'll give you a plus or minus accuracy. Zoom to like Greenland or something and put your mouse over the scale bar, it's like plus or minus 4,000 miles. It was great. Wow. I love it. I love that we did that. Like that's one of my favorite, favorite, that's one of my favorite things in Tableau. Um, but yeah, so Mercator just has this great name recognition, but it, it distorts area. And so for a lot of thematic mapping, it's not a great choice because you want to be able to compare areas to one another. Um, and so your other map projections have been developed that make it so that you have uh, just kind of a more level playing field in order to do those area-based comparisons. And one of the ones from, this wasn't just in the last decade, um, uh, a number of folks got together and they designed this this map projection, the one that, that's behind me, um, the Equal Earth Projection. Um, Bernie Yaney, uh, Tom Patterson, and Boyan Savrich. Um, I think they, I think it was just the three of them. Um, Dan Streeby may have helped him out as well with some of the equations. I'm not sure, but it's just a really kind of nice equal area projection that looks pretty. Um, but uh, since I'm 
kind of talking about the equal area stuff. Uh, a couple of years ago, I wrote a paper called The Unicorn of Map Projections, um, because this is this is one of the things that just cracks me up. Every few years, there's like this big like social media blitz and, you know, the press picks up on it. It's like somebody has invented the new most accurate map ever. Um, it really literally happens like every two to three years, we have a new most accurate map ever um, because people are like all of a sudden discovering that maps distort because a globe and a flat map are like topologically different and oh my gosh, you can't make everything perfect. And so someone will be like, but I made a new map. It's equal area and it's the most accurate map ever. Do you know what? It's as accurate as other equal area maps. Um, turns out equal area is equal area. That's interesting. I, I, that was something I knew I had to ask you about because I, I was thinking about this before I saw your Lego map. And I was I was thinking one of my big thoughts is at what sort of, okay, if we're zooming up from the ground, like I'm standing on the ground, I'm limited to the site that I can see around me. Um, that more or less, I'm not experiencing too much of the curvature of the earth, right? I'm not experiencing too much distortion of, you know, of geography based on what my human vision is limited to at a certain point, like how far up are we getting before we're starting to experience that? Like uh, seeing a, a country level, like a certain by continent, we're seeing it for sure. But like, I, at what level does it matter? I guess I'm thinking, you know, I mean, it depends on, you know, like how big of an area you're talking about uh, because countries are all such different sizes even continents are such different sizes. Um, it depends on depends on the location. You, even if you, if you talk about like the, the conterminous United States, just the lower 48 states, it is large enough and you've got you know, kind of a great enough east-west expanse and north-south that you're going to start to see some noticeable distortion um, with pretty much any, any projection. And distortions can take you know, different, you know, different characteristics. So distorting area, distances, directions. I mean, one of the big things any cartographer does when they're, they're planning out a map is think about what is the data? What are the types of things people are trying to interpret? And so what are the properties that I need to preserve in order to make it so that people can understand the data more easily? Um, because not everything has to be area-based. Let's say you know, you're working on you know, some kind of shipping map and you really want to see, you know, from this one origin location, I need to understand the distances to every other location. You could use an equidistant projection, which is going to preserve distances from that one spot. So all of those lines connecting can be compared directly. Or if you're, you know, looking at a dot density map, for instance, so you've got, you know, one dot equals 300 people. The way that people interpret those patterns is all about how closely those points are spaced to each other, how far away they are. And when they start to coalesce, you know, you see, oh, there's, it's denser, there's more stuff there. But if you're not preserving distances, or you've got, you know, kind of a huge distortion for that area, then you're going to start to see a slightly different pattern. So you've got to be really careful about how your map is distorting distances and directions and areas. And you can't preserve everything. So it's often just a do the best that you can. Um, a couple of years ago, I actually wrote a book on this. So if anybody, you know, really cares to like totally nerd out on that um, with a colleague of mine from Penn State, uh, Fritz Kessler, we wrote a book on working with map projections. 
and it's tailored to what are the types of problems that you're trying to solve and what is the basic information that you need in order to decision make about this. Um, oh, if I've got this type of map I want to make and this type of data, how can I translate that to what type of projection might be the best and what are the trade-offs? So you're going to drop that you wrote a book and you're not going to mention the title of the book. Yeah, it's called Working with Map Projections. So <laughs> okay. I wrote a book on working with map projections and it's literally called Working with Map Projections. Okay, good, good. Like I, I'm like, if we're look, if we're plugging books here, let's let's do this right, okay? Yeah, I, yeah. It's like a, a working with map projections, a guide to selecting projections, some something like that. It's I was gonna say it's normally like right on my desk and yeah. I've got so much crap on my desk right now that I think it's somewhere under under the pile. So you're opening me up to more questions. So okay. you're a cartographer. I'm assuming there are different types of cartographers. Is that also a thing? There's like a taxonomy and like people have different sort of like expertise. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. What are the tools of the cartog cartographer? I'm, and now I'm struggling to say the word. Uh, totally depends on what, you know, what flavor of cartographer you are. I mean, if you're somebody that really does design work, you know, it's all about, you know, I've got the data and I need to make a national geographic kind of map. I mean, that's really, um, you know, there's a large part of just graphic design. So if you think about what are the tools that a graphic designer would use, they're going to be really heavily invested in those. Also some of the geospatial tools, um, but, you know, a lot more heavily invested in like, how do I make, make design design tools to the things I need them to do. Um, if you are a cartographer that's doing more of the you know, I work for a planning department. I'm the person that puts out all of the maps that helps people understand all the zoning and understand where the permits have been issued. You know, that's a different different sort of cartography that's probably going to be done more in a geographic information system because you're just mostly working with the data and doing these just sort of standard um, municipal type maps. Um, other types of cartographers. So my, my master's degree is in analytical cartography and um, I didn't make, I don't think I made any maps for my master's thesis. Um, I mean, I probably made some, but um, it was really all about looking at map generalization techniques and data processing and what happened to the structure of the data when we did processing. And there's a lot of overlap with that for things like information hiding. How can you hide things in the coordinates, uh, maybe like digitally watermark data. Um, and that's like a totally different kind of cartography like there's no pretty map that comes out of that like I spent I spent my time writing scripts that were like stripping vertices out of files and like looking at how many decimal places of precision they had and like what I could like weasel into the data distribution um, without actually changing the data um, so it's like there are a lot of different kinds of cartography um, or my my, uh, my PhD uh, was cognitive cartography and so I did a mix of psychology and education and computer science and linguistics and geography. And it really focused on the, how do people think about maps? Um, so there are lots of different flavors of cartographers. Um, and if you ask me to make a map that looks good, which is what most people think cartographers do, other than my Lego map, I make the fricking ugliest maps of anybody I know. I'm like, I know I've got the title cartographer, but do not expect, you know, nice color choices. Um, I'm going to go to Color Brewer. I'm going to get a color scheme that somebody else said looked good. And there, there we have it. Like, I don't, I don't make nice looking maps, but I love the data. 
See, this is so fascinating because people would say we're both data data people like, oh, you data nerds. And it's like you and I are speaking two entirely different languages here. I, th I think people don't realize how stratified so many different professions are. Like we both may deal in data, but what we do is so vastly different. Um, oh, my gosh, that's so but fascinating. There are so many things that are so similar too. like I work with a lot of spatial data. You're telling me you work with a lot of data that isn't spatial, but I bet we have a lot of the same problems. You know, if you think about what are the steps that you go through with your data before you do anything with it, you're looking for, are there anomalies? Are there things that look kind of weird? What needs to be cleaned? Are there things that need to be simplified? Um, you know, I might be simplifying the borders of a country just so you know, the line works looks better at whatever scale I'm working at. You might be simplifying 87 different data classification codes down to 10. You know, it's all exactly the same process and it's really similar ways of thinking about the data because it's about what do I have to do to get the data clean enough for a model or for analysis, to get it optimized so that it's fast, to get it optimized so I can visualize it and it looks good. Because you're not going to make a bar chart with, you know, 70 bars on it, just like I'm not going to make a choropleth map with, you know, 70 different, you know, hues on it. No, no one's going to like that. Absolutely not. Um so you, you've actually opened my eyes to a lot of stuff and made me think because I was actually thinking like, so obviously humanity has gone through a lot of different phases in terms of our mapping, right? Like there were ages of like exploration and colonization when people were discovering, you know, places that maybe people didn't live, maybe places people did live and, you know, mapping stuff that had not previously been mapped. And that's, we're getting the outlines of our continents. We're finding out where rivers are. We're actually like putting some kind of visual to this where we can actually communicate to someone else. Hey, look, there's this thing rather than describing, you know, if you head Northeast in this direction for several hundred miles, you'll get something. We could actually put together something that described what it's like to get there. What are we mapping now? Like, you know, the earth is limited in landmass, obviously. There's, you know, 70% of that's underwater. So I know we're mapping oceans too. Like, what what do we map? Like, are we remapping Everything. stuff? No, I mean, it's like, there's so much more data. Like, um, have you heard of digital twins? No. So for instance, like trying to create these, like these digital twins of locations. You know, you've got all of these sensors that are collecting data. So it's like the whole internet of things, being able to track everything real time. I mean, there's just, just scads of new data. All of these, um, or all of these uh, new satellites that are going up, all the small sats that are collecting imagery data, LIDAR data, um, you know, there is so much data being collected. I mean, I can't even describe like how much data is being collected. And I mean, it's like, we just have so much. I mean, there's still so much we need to do. I mean, things like mapping the seafloor. I mean, I think there's still a huge portion of the seafloor that needs to be mapped. Um, but, you know, if we want to do like really good analyses and we really want to understand the problems of the world, we need these massive volumes of data. Um, you know, the, the old school data collection of, you know, the surveyor went out, you know, I know how many feet to go and then I turn and, you know, I've got, I've got all this, this, this data. I mean, that's, you know, that's great data. Um, and it was great for the way that we could collect data back in the day, but we have so many new ways of collecting high volume, high precision, um, just temporally, you know, very, you know, very regular temporal slices. Um, 
yeah, the world is just, we're just swimming in data and it, we're only going to get more and more data. Just, it's, it's amazing thinking about the spatial data that's being collected now. I have to think given the sophistication of new techniques and the ability of sensors to capture stuff at a level where previously someone might be using pen and paper to, you know, describe the outline of like a cove or something, um, that we're probably changing our understanding of a lot of different things based on what has previously been mapped. There could, you know, there's plenty of room for human error, miscalculation, um, all of that. It's, I, I wonder, like, are our coastlines changing all the time? And we, we don't, at a level we never perceive because we're getting better data. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the coastlines are always changing, um, you know, sea level rise. Sure. What about um, any state or any country that has a border that's defined by a river? Mm. Does that river always stay in the same place? Nope. You know, it meanders. Um, so over time, the course of that river changes, which means that your boundaries change. Uh, the world is constantly shifting. Location is kind of, I don't know, ephemeral. <laughs> it, what does it mean? It really, and, and you, it's funny you say that because I'm literally in one of those states and I'm, you know, 20 miles away from one of those boundaries right now. The Mississippi River is literally uh, in my backyard and it separates us from Arkansas and Mississippi is right below us. We're in a uh, three state area right here within, you know, 20 minutes of driving. I can be in any two other states. Um, or so th think or think about, you know, what what constitutes beachfront property uh, and then the hurricane comes through, <laughs> and, you know, beachfront fair. property is now, you know, a little different. You had three houses in front of you and now you're beachfront. <laughs> I mean, geography changes a lot. Wow, this is this has been very illuminating because this is something I I don't think about and I suspect most people don't. Um, because we just sort of take for granted, like, this is what it is. We look at a map, you know, we look at, we look at maps of the earth, you know, we don't take into account that some things are dramatically overstated or dramatically understated, probably dramatically overstated as you get to the outer, uh, the, the upper uh, and lower hemispheres, as you mentioned, further away from the equator. But like, we just look at that as like, yeah, that's earth. And, and we don't uh, put a lot of critical thought into it because, you know, we, we're busy or, you know, we're not interested. Yeah, I mean, this is this is kind of a huge part of what cognitive cartography is, you know, thinking about what are these these ways that people think about the world and how does it line up or not with the way that we're representing the data. So one of my favorite little demos that, that I would give folks, um, because oftentimes, you know, questions might be something simple, like, you know, I've got a bunch of data points, and I need to know what county or what census tract or what, you know, insert aggregating geography level, each of these points falls into because I'm assigning you know, the customers to sales territories or whatever. And so I, I put all my points on the map. I've got my geography outlines on top of it. I do a spatial join. Now every point knows what polygon it falls in. And then I start looking at the data like, oh, but I've got, you know, 5% of my data points that aren't in any polygon. Clearly that's wrong. Oh, but I've got this data point and it says it's in this zip code, but I know it's not in that zip code. That's wrong. Well, right. What are the boundaries of those polygons look like? If you go to the U.S. Census and download um, data from them, they have some super high quality data sets. They also have multiple different levels of generalization available because they're useful for different mapping purposes. And depending on how detailed that line is, points may fall in or out of 
of Polygon. And that is just, you know, it's not a problem with, in a way, it's not really a problem with the data, but people make, you know, people lose trust because they didn't necessarily understand the accuracy of the input, you know, the points and the polygons, because the points are naturally going to have some plus or minus tolerance on their positional accuracy. The polygons are going to have some sort of accuracy tolerance. Uh, they've been simplified, you know, they're a representation of the world. And that just introduces some fuzz. And you got to understand that fuzz. So it's, this is, this is interesting, and I think that people definitely don't think about this, is how difficult it is to quantifiably define reality. Oh, yeah. I mean, this happens with all data, though. You know, you measure something about a human, you're sampling it. The fact that you've gone out and collected the data about them probably means that you've impacted it. Um, you know, it's like sensors have different levels of accuracy. Um, you, you, property values. You send someone out, you send six, six uh, appraisers out to appraise a property, they're not going to come up with the same number. You know, every data source is going to have some error associated with it. And so, you know, just, just being, think, you know, being able to think about what are the potential challenges? What are, and what, what kind of tolerance for error can you handle? I mean, there's a lot that goes into working with data, whether it's you know spatial or non-spatial. Wow. Okay. You're you're whether I'm, I'm like super gloom and doom. I'm going to tell you all of the things that are going to go wrong and that it's going to be really horrible. And then I'm going to be like, you know, just call it good. It'll be fine. That's generally where I'm with most things. Like we've made it this far. It'll work out. Uh, but this this is making me think so much because so much of this is stuff I ne I never would have thought about or considered. And just by having the conversation, I know I am going to think about this in the future. And one thing I want to pick your brain on is, so, you know, obviously I do a lot of public data work and private data work. Uh, most of the people that are listening to this will be, and probably my mom for some reason. Um, so I wanted to ask you, okay, someone's making maps. Do you have any gotchas, like watch out for this or you know, like general map making advice for data folks that are making maps. Um, if you have a choice, you know, always think about your map projection to make sure that you're picking an appropriate map projection. Um, think about how you've simplified your data, um, you know, whether it's, you know, the spatial data and you're actually generalizing the line work on it, um, or thinking about how you bin your data values. Um, you know, let's say you're showing a map of, you know, median household income um, for the United States. You might not show every individual value. You might break them into ranges, you know, 25 to 50,000, 50 to 100,000. Um, make sure that those ranges have a meaning because pretty much every tool that you use to help automate the creation of maps is going to give you um, some default way of doing that. And then, you know, maybe, you know, one to, you know, a half dozen prepackaged, you know, pick one of these statistical uh, ways of, you know, creating bins. And that's a large part of how people see the pattern, just looking at light stuff, dark stuff, more things, less things. And if you don't pay attention to that, 
you can be super misleading, you know, you know, really bordering on the unethical, uh, you know, data representation. Um, so I think those are probably, I mean, those are really kind of the top things that come to mind, you know, thinking about the accuracy, thinking about the, uh, the map projection and really thinking about your classification and how you end up representing the data on the map. Cause you know, no one's going to read the legend. I mean, if they do, you know, that's great. Um, but for the most part, people are very intuitive with reading maps. There's more stuff over there. There's less stuff over there. I have interpreted the pattern and it's going to be based on colors. It's going to be based on the symbols that you choose and the individual decisions that you make without like, without messing with the data at all, can present a very different picture on the map. And that's something to be super cautious about. I feel like I'm going to need to go back and re-listen to this podcast myself to like pick up half the details because I feel like you're putting out so much detail and uh, I'm slightly overwhelmed because I realize how little I truly know about this. Well, what I, what I used to do in class um, when I was teaching university classes is sometimes we would do what I called a map Monday. And I have all my students, I'd give them a theme and everybody had to find a map. And we'd pick, you know, half a dozen of them and we would just talk about them in class. What was good? What was bad? What could we ask questions about? Maybe we need to do, you know, the Map Monday podcast where it's like you can you can get your listeners to submit some some maps that they think are interesting and we'll just pick them apart. <laughs> I, I will tell you, um, while I'm not a map guy, I do have one boutique data map that I did buy, uh, and that was I bought R.J. Andrews' map of California. I don't know if you've seen that or have that. I haven't seen that one, no. Yeah, it's excellent. I'll have to send you pictures later. It folds out, and it um, it as it folds down, it reveals each of the industries uh, across the state of California. So it's it's cool. pretty it's pretty cool. It's it's a vertical map that he hand drew. I think he did a Kickstarter for it, and I'm like, you know, this. RJ is a cool guy. This seems like an interesting thing. It's $30. Why not? So yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, it's it's that seems right up your alley. But yeah, it's uh maps are interesting. Like I, I discovered uh we we took a family trip to uh St. Louis a few years ago. And in the gift shop, you know, they they covered a lot of the history of sort of they did like a three-tiered history of sort of the region. It's like the this is the the uh, like American colonist version of what happened. This is the Native American version mm -hmm. of what happened, like to get the different perspectives because it's very easy to see history through like one lens, depending on who you are, or who wrote the history. And uh, they had a lot of cool maps in the gift shop. And one of them was um, maps of the uh, Civil War. And I'm like, this is really cool because I've never really thought about where all these battles actually took place. I mean, one of them took place about five miles from where I live. I'm originally from Pennsylvania and I've been to Gettysburg, you know, so it's like there are all these different um, battles that took place. I was in Key West a couple of years ago and I didn't realize this. Key West is home to the southernmost um, U.S. fort. There's actually Fort Zachary Taylor, the only president with the same name as me, which is kind of cool, um, down there. And it's this fort. And they, they basically threw this fort down there like, we don't want people rounding the tip of this. And we have prior problems with pirates <laughs> anyway. So, like, we're just putting a fort down the islands uh, and we're just that, that's going to be how it is. But, yeah, it's uh, it's really cool to to find out little location based things. And I don't know, as you connect things more, it becomes more meaningful. I know my wife sort of struggles connecting geography. So like when she's uh, traveling through town, she, she knows like three roads and it's like, how can I use this road to get there? And we'll sort of mm -hmm. divert back to those. 
And as we sort of talk about the how the different sort of suburbs and parts of the city and everything connect, it's like, oh, wow, it's almost like magic once you create that bigger picture and understand the interconnectedness of everything. And I think that's one of the promises of maps that I find so interesting. It's like the ability to, you know, connect ideas and connect people. Yeah, and we'll, we'll have to bookmark this for another conversation, but I used to do work on wayfinding strategies so we can talk about, you know, how to help your, your wife learn some new new places because there are all these these cognitive ways that people start to put together information and form these you know, real kind of survey grade knowledge about space where they allow them to short do shortcuts and stuff like that it's really fascinating to think about like how how the human brain just internalizes um, spatial information for navigation that's so awesome I, yeah I, I definitely do want to follow up on that this has been really cool I, I'm glad that we decided to do this thank you I feel like I have barely scratched the surface You've made me more interested in stuff that I didn't realize I was interested in. Like, really, I, I wanted to pick your brain about some gotchas. And by the end of this, I realized how little I actually know. And I am always excited when I have those those moments of discovery. Because like, oh, that means there's a lot more I can learn. That's cool. Well, this has been super fun for me. I mean, thank you for the opportunity. I mean, I love just just talking about maps and thinking about how people think about maps. And, you know, I get so ingrained in like how I think about maps and like what the people I'm working with directly are doing that it's just so exciting to talk to people and just be like, how do you think about maps? Um, like I learned so much just about like what gets people excited about maps and how they think about the world. It's, thanks so much. Well, before we totally wrap, uh, are there any map-based things that you uh, would like to recommend people check out if they became curious about our conversations today, like any books or resources, um, you know, you, anything? Um, I mean, there's so much good stuff out there. I mean, so there are some great organizations. There's a group called NASIS, which is the National North American Cartographic Information Society. They just do tremendous cool work and they've got a great conference every year. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of academic writing about cartography, but um, I think I think places like NASIS and they've got this cool journal, um, Cartographic Perspectives, that has a lot of really practical cartography work. Um, I mean, I could tell you the textbook that I always had people buy for my cartography class is this, this book called Thematic Cartography and Geovisualization by Terry Slocum. Um, and, and he's got a, a few co-authors, all super awesome people, but I'm just going to mention Terry's name because, uh, you know, he's probably easiest to find. Um, but it's a great just survey on, you know, all things cartography. And if you really want to like geek out on the cognitive, like how do people think about maps? Um, back in the mid nineties, Alan McEachern from Penn State wrote this book, um, How Maps Work. And it is just like, it is the book. I mean, that it's one of those ones where when I'm when I'm working on a project, I just always have that planted right next to me because if I want to know about the psychology research that led to like what is human perception and uh, I mean it's like it's just the best well researched like amazing book. Um, and if you just want pretty stuff, you know, search the internet and then post it on Twitter and tag me, and I'll tell you why I hate it. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, have, I have Twitter muted right now, so I don't really see any notifications, but I'll, I'll sure I'll turn it back on in a few months and then I'll start start telling everybody why I hate, you know, different popular maps. <laughs> that, look, we need to know this because it, as with anyone else, oftentimes the bright and shiny isn't always the best thing. But if you're not in the know in a certain field, you don't know that. So it's good. The bright for and shiny looks the best. And everybody's like, I love it because it's bright and shiny. Absolutely. And then like, I'm like, oh, I don't know, it's fine. 
<laughs> Look, I've seen Speed Racer. It's bright and shiny. It's not a good movie, but I love the bright and shiny. Oh, oh man. So thank you so much for coming on. This has been a lot of fun, and I hope everyone enjoys listening to it because this has been uh, just such a different perspective into data than we usually have on the show. And uh, I hope maybe uh, we have you back on sometime soon. Hey, thanks for sticking around to the end. I really appreciate you listening to the Data Plus Love podcast. If you'd like to see more about what we're up to with the show, go to anchor.fm slash data plus love. Just spell it out, not a literal plus sign. Here you'll be able to see our library of episodes as well as interact with them either through polls or comments or leave a voicemail message that I'll put on an episode. You can interact with me personally by joining me on Twitter. I'm at Zach Bowders, not hard to hunt down. And if you like what you're hearing, consider leaving a tip for us or signing up for a small monthly donation at our ko-fi.com slash data plus love. Buying a cup of coffee for the show is just $3, and you could get more if you choose, or sign up to give that $3 or more monthly. Either way, I really appreciate it. Lastly, if you'd like to see more of my public data viz work, check me out on Tableau Public. So go to public.tableau.com and search for Zach Bowders. I'm the only one you won't have trouble finding me. I promise. So thanks again for hanging on to the end of the show. I really appreciate all of your listens. And until next time, this has been Zach Bowders for the Data Plus Love Network.